Hello, and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Richard Lawson, and I'm here today with Rebecca Ford. Hi. And David Canfield. Hello. Well, we three future festival goers have a lot to talk about today because the Venice Film Festival has announced its full lineup, uh, while Toronto, which happens basically a week later, keeps adding to their roster. I don't know. <laughs> the, the Toronto strategy this year has been interesting. It feels like they're announcing one big title every two days. <laughs> um <laughs> And later in the episode, we'll talk about the Black Panther trailer that came, or Wakanda Forever, rather, uh, trailer that came out of Comic Con over the weekend. Uh, and we'll have a spoilery discussion of the film Nope, which opened last Friday. Um, so if you don't want to hear spoilers, you can just end the episode after we talk about Wakanda Forever. But yes, uh, film festival announcements have happened. The big one from Toronto at the end of last week was The Fablemans. Were you two as surprised as I was to hear that this is a Toronto world premiere? Shocked. Yep. Definitely shocked. He's never been, for one thing. Yeah. It feels like they're doing something different with this one. You know, we have all heard this is a much more personal story for Spielberg. And so I think they're going to take a whole new path for how they introduce this film to the world. And and this is a, a huge deal for Toronto. Yeah, it's a huge deal for Toronto. I mean, Spielberg... The last movie he had at a film festival was, I believe, the BFG Out of Competition at Cannes. Oh, yeah. I remember that. But other than that, he really is not a festival filmmaker. No. Like he, He'll have something that comes out at the end of the year that premieres on its own, separate of any festival or anything. And then, you know, his, his blockbuster movies, you know, those are summer, spring movies. Uh, so this is interesting. And, and for people listening who aren't maybe as intimately familiar with the, the sort of undulations of these film festivals as we are, Toronto is the biggest one and it gets a ton of movies. But a lot of times those movies have already premiered at Venice or Telluride. Um, it's rarer to get a movie of this stature that world premieres at Toronto, but it's not unheard of. Uh, especially when you consider films like Belfast or Green Book, which are movies that are sort of engineered, if you want to be cynical about it, to win that coveted People's Choice Award, which is oftentimes a great precursor to a Best Picture nomination. Yeah, I think that's definitely <laughs> a boon to the campaign already, is it's a Steven Spielberg movie in Toronto, so it's going to have a bit of a leg up there. I remember Lincoln premiered at the New York Film Festival. Um, yes, right, okay. And I think generally, the the move broadly makes sense for the movie to make a festival play because of exactly what Rebecca said. It is not of the usual scale and commercial appeal of a Steven Spielberg movie, including just last year's West Side Story, which did pretty well awards-wise without going to a festival. It was the Best Picture nominee and won an acting Oscar and all that. Yeah, I do also think it's partly... There does seem to be some momentum behind Toronto having a really big comeback year. Like, you've also seen stuff like Knives Out 2, which is called A Glass Onion, and The Woman King with Viola Davis and a really great supporting cast from Gina Prince-Bythewood that feel like really 
classic TIFF premieres, big commercial movies that also really could use that festival kickoff. Um, and having the combination of those with these more specialty TIFF premieres, still have great starry casts and all that, but feel more in the Telluride Venice vein. And then you're going to also surely have a lot of Telluride Venice films that have already premiered. Like you were saying, Richard, um, you're going to have a really, really strong slate. After two years of Toronto kind of playing at best uh, second fiddle to those uh, Labor Day weekend festivals and premieres. Yeah, I mean, Toronto has, it serves a great function in in the, you know, the film calendar every year. But because it's the most attended festival, it is in a lot of ways the most accessible, given that it's in a city that's close to New York, close to a lot of American cities, um, not a terribly long flight from Europe. It's always had a really important function, but it had, I think, been losing a bit of its identity as Venice got bigger and bigger in terms of, you know, I don't think that the Venice festival programmers would describe themselves this way, but or their own festival this way, but like, it has become the sort of most important clearinghouse for the Oscars, um, increasingly, as well as some big commercial fair here and there. So to have all these world premieres, especially a Steven Spielberg memoir piece, that feels really significant. Though one could, on the flip side of things, <laughs> say, is this an indicator that it's maybe very broadly populist, like Belfast or Greenbook or whatever? You know, is it is it is it maybe not as arty or elevated, I guess, as some of us would hope? I mean, maybe that's kind of a snobby thing to say, but like that is some of the whispers I've been hearing since that announcement. Yeah, I thought of that too. Yeah, I mean, it, it might just not be the movie that I expected it to be, given, I mean, we we don't know really much about it. We know who's in it. I keep hearing that, like, Michelle Williams is going to be the big yeah. um, Oscar hopeful for that. But um, beyond that, I mean, everyone's going to find out in Toronto, which I think for that festival is very exciting. And it's a much bigger platform than I think a kind of more private, you know, December premiere would be. Yeah, I think you're right. There's so much expectation built up around that one for a film that we know not that much about and have seen nothing of. But I, I think you're right. There's a there's definitely a lot of pressure on it to perform, and that could of course lead to a little disappointment if it's if it's not what we think it's going to be. Yeah, the Grosch People's Choice Award is it's to lose at, the, at this point. <laughs> yeah. So if it if anything but victory there is a disappointment, I, I think. Um. Well, speaking of films that we don't know, well, I mean, it's kind of a very, we know we know a lot about, let's say, Blonde, the Andrew Dominic, Marilyn Monroe adaptation. Well, we know enough about it, I guess. Uh, we know about Darinovsky's, Aronofsky's The Whale. I'm, I'm talking about all the movies that have been announced as Venice Film Festival premieres, uh, which is quite a hearty lineup this year. Rebecca, what jumped out to you most? Like, what, what, what are you most excited to see the reaction to? Well, David and I did a little analysis of this lineup, which is on the site now. And and I feel like I'm so excited about it. I, I think they have so much that I'm really um, hopeful for. Uh, the couple that stands out to me, obviously, um, Todd Field's first film in 15 years um, is a big deal. And also, speaking of high expectations, I think has those. And then I'm really curious about the Aronofsky um, film, The Whale. I, I just think it's kind of an embarrassment of riches when we when we look at this lineup. Yeah, the, the, the Todd Field film is called Tar. It's a biopic, I believe, of a orchestral conductor. 
uh, played by Kate Blanchett. And they, on Monday of this week, released a odd little teaser trailer for it. <laughs> that is, a, you, did any of you see Manifesto, which was this kind of traveling video art project that Kate Blanchett did, uh, and then they turned it into a film that I think you could see in theaters? Yes. It had that sort of slow-mo, arty vibe while there's this voiceover narration about God <laughs> and <laughs> obliteration. And I, I, I don't know. It, was, it, it, it doesn't really give you a sense of what that movie's going to be until the last seconds of the trailer in which you see Kate Blanchett wielding a conductor's baton mightily. And, you know, so I'm, you know, this is a guy, Todd Field, who has not made a movie since Little Children, which was what, 2007? 2006, I believe. 2006. So even longer. And then previous to that, he had In the Bedroom. He's really only made those two films. There's been stuff rumored in between um, 2006 and now, most notably, I think, an HBO adaptation of Beautiful Ruins, the novel that that never came to be. So, yeah, I I agree. That one is probably... I didn't think that was going to be there. Maybe I should have, but um, I'm very excited about that. Yeah, that 90-minute trailer, or however long it was, would have fit quite cleanly into the manifesto. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah, yeah, it was... um, it was also a reminder that this is a Todd Field movie. He is kind of known for trailers like that. And I was <laughs> very surprised and very excited by it. Um, yeah, once they put something like that out, you can pretty much guarantee that the the festival campaign is up and running. Yeah, I think there's a lot of performances to be on the lookout for, as ever, that being one of them. Uh, Florian Zeller is back with The Son following The Father, Will the Holy Ghost be next? Stay tuned. <laughs> um, this one stars Hugh Jackman, Vanessa Kirby, and Laura Dern. Uh, so two Oscar nominees and an Oscar winner. And he writes very rich material for actors generally in his uh, theater work. And as we know from his past last film, his film work as well. So that's one that I think could definitely kickstart a few races at the very least. And Netflix, once again, has a pretty hefty slate here. I think they've got two of the most anticipated movies of the fall. Uh, the new movie from uh, Alejandro Iñárritu, uh, Bardo. It's got another double title like Birdman, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths. He needs to stop doing that. We're just calling it Bardo, guys. We're not. <laughs> yeah. We're not saying it yeah. anymore. <laughs> this is the only. This is the only time. <laughs> yes, we, we will is... <laughs> never say that again. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, Tar. The style is it has the accent on the A and it's all capitalized, Richard. So. <laughs> I'm not okay. sure how we're going to deal with that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yes, but as for Bardo, uh, it's another comedy for him. His last comedy that premiered at Venice was Birdman. That went on to win Best Picture. And actually, Inuritu is one Best Director for his last two features. So obviously one to look out for. And then probably my most anticipated is White Noise, Noah Baumbach's new movie um, with Adam Driver and Greta Gerwig uh, with fantastic hair based on the first look still they released as part of the announcement. Uh, it's opening the festival. It's an adaptation of the Don DeLillo novel. It's a it's a bigger swing from Bombac than I think we're used to. And and as a huge fan of his stuff, um, I'm really intrigued by uh, how he's going to spin that book because it's pretty notorious as a tough to adapt novel. Yeah, I I remember years and years ago at the American Repertory Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, my parents had season tickets and they took us to see a play called Valparaiso that was written by Don DeLillo. I think it might have been based on a short story or a novel of his, or maybe it was just an original play. But either way, at the time, it was the most boring thing I'd ever seen in my life. 
And so I have this like innate Don DeLillo like aversion. So I'm I'm cautiously curious about that one. But um, that was I was also probably 12 years old. So I should give myself a little credit. That's um, a formative experience. Right yeah. There. Uh, I think it's interesting that White Noise is the opening film. I mean, that's clearly the festival trying to set some kind of tone. What tone? I don't know exactly. Um, opening night selections can mean a variety of things. It can be something they kind of want to get out of the way, something they they really want to kick off the festival with a bang or just something kind of like, I think that when I went to Venice the first time in 2019, it was the Coreta film. So, you know, which was kind of a mild, not, not, yeah. not terribly earth shaking film. So I think the Bombac will probably loom a little bit larger than that. Yeah. Last year was Parallel Mothers. So. Okay. Yeah. I, does everyone else think Adam Driver is looking more and more like Noah Baumbach in every film he does? Like now he has the same haircut. <laughs> it's like the the Jane Campion thing, you know. Just sometimes she just she just wants some of her her, her actors to look like her. Um, yeah, I, I could def, definitely see. It. Or Christopher Nolan does that too, right? Like the shaggy, oh, yes. blonde yeah. hair and the yeah. But yeah, I agree. I think I feel very hopeful for the bomb back and i i do think it being the opening night film is is promising and i feel like that's definitely one of my most anticipated as well do you think blonde uh again the marilyn monroe biopic starring anna de armas uh for which we have a very brief little teaser where we hear her marilyn voice just a tiny bit do you think that that being at venice in competition does that say anything to either of you about how we should be anticipating that film? Because the rumors have ranged from it's an NC-17 masterpiece to it's an NC-17 disaster uh, and everywhere in between. So I'm curious about where you are, are all on Blonde at the moment. I feel like there were rumors last year that Venice had turned it down. And right. it, it, had, it had started spiraling from there, actually. <laughs> so... I guess this is a sign that Venice didn't despise it, which some people seem to believe. I'm not putting too much stock in it yet. It definitely shows that Netflix is taking the film seriously, um, which maybe shouldn't be a huge surprise. Um, there's a lot of anticipation around it, and there's going to be, I would guarantee, a lot of reactions to both her performance and to Andrew Dominic's uh, rendering of Marilyn Monroe. Um he is sure to provoke some very, very, very strong opinions. And that seems to be where we're at. And I don't really know what we can say beyond that, that hasn't already been said. Yeah, that to me feels like one of those things where you, you know, you see it at Cannes or Venice or some international festival that isn't Toronto. And it plays well there. And you're like, yeah, let's see how that does when it gets to North America. Yes. Because, you know, because I, m what I have heard about Blonde, and I might be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure this is the main knowledge on it is that like, the reason it's NC-17 is for explicit sex, including sexual violence. And I could see the Euro crowd at Venice being like, sure. And then it landing with a thud at Toronto or somewhere else. Um, so it could have one of those precipitous falls once it leaves that sort of Euro climb. I don't know. Yeah. This seems like the best launch for it. Whatever, yeah. however far it goes from there, this seems like where they should be starting it off. And it's, is it, is it Netflix too? Yes. Yeah. So they couldn't be a can because of those rules. So this was definitely its best bet. One other film I was genuinely surprised to see on the list because I had frankly kind of forgotten about it despite us all talking about it a couple months ago is the Martin McDonough film, The Banshees of Inishern. 
um, which is a reunion for In Bruce stars Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell, correct? And it's another one of his little... He has a kind of series of plays, um, and I guess now a film, that are set on these little Irish islands. The Cripple of Inishman, which Daniel Radcliffe did on Broadway a few years ago. The Lieutenant of Inishmore, which was a big hit on Broadway, I don't know, probably 15, 16 years ago. So I'm curious about this because a Venice premiere leads me to suspect that this is definitely a McDonough film that is going for awards, much in the way that Three Billboards did. Yeah, we have a very splashy first look on VanityFair.com that uh, folks interested can read. Um, I've seen the movie, and I cannot say anything beyond what is in that piece, but uh, I think you're exactly right on the money, Richard, in that it is it resembles his theatrical work more. It's the first Irish feature uh, he has made, uh, despite at this point, a pretty healthy film career. Um, it does reunite Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell. I think it's pretty safe to say they're in a very different key than in uh, in Bruges, which has definitely gone on to amass a real cult fandom after a pretty quiet U.S. release when it premiered. And yeah, it's 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 definitely positioned that way by Searchlight. Uh, it, it, I, I know that they really believe in the movie, and I think anyone who's expecting like Francis McDormand cursing at children... <laughs> At, a, at an elementary school, uh, should uh, adjust their expectations a little bit. It's it's it is not that, um, but it is still um, what those more familiar with McDonough, more broadly familiar with his work. Um, I don't think they'd be terribly surprised by what the movie is. We've talked a little bit about the the Netflix slate, but I'm also really excited for what A24 is bringing to the festival. You know, I think they yeah. have been kind of up and down for, you know, what they bring to festivals and award season lately. But, you know, they have The Whale, the Aronofsky film, and also The Eternal Daughter, which is from souvenir director Joanna Hogg and stars Tilda Swinton. So to me, that feels like it could be definitely something to watch. I think she plays a woman who returns to a former family home to discover long buried secrets. I feel like that logline applies to a couple of the films in this festival. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, Weirdly, you know. that's what Blonde's about, too. <laughs> <laughs> also, I think Bardo is about someone returning home to discover something, right? But I think she's an excellent filmmaker. And with Tilda, that could be something to keep an eye on. There's the fun of that also um, kind of being spoken about as like a secret film, you know, mm, that, yes, that no right. one knew they were making it. And then all of a sudden it was announced that it was happening. So I, I think, yeah, that's that's really cool because Joanna Hogg, the, the, the souvenir films are have been highlights of their respective years uh, recently. And um, watching her collaborate with Tilda, uh, who is her old film school classmate, and, and also Tilda's daughter, Honor Swinton Byrne, has been exciting and but it, it'll be, I, I'm happy to see Tilda moving to the front, you know, because she was sort of on the sidelines in the souvenir film. So I'm curious to see what they do in that regard. Um, you know, and there aren't, you know, as always, there aren't a ton of female directors in that competition lineup. So yep. um, it is exciting to see at least Hog there, as well as Rebecca Zlotowski, uh, who has other people's children. And then I'm looking at out of competition, speaking of female directors, and you have Don't Worry Darling, the Olivia Wilde film that already has a pair of trailers out. Everyone is curious, you know, about what is this actually about? Because it has one of those sort of mystery box trailers where, yeah. it, you know, it starts one way and then it takes a turn as some sort of sound effect starts playing, uh, which is a trailer format I'm getting a little sick of, to be honest. But, but also people are wondering about Harry Styles. I mean, if nothing else, right, like, Harry Styles in one of those wood-sided motorboats in Venice going to the premiere. Those will be good photos. Yeah. He's going to have a healthy September because then he's going to 
dart off to Toronto for the My Policeman premiere. So he's gonna he's gonna have cameras following him from coast to coast. I mean, we're we giving we're being given Harry Styles and Timothy Chalamet at the same festival. I just I just don't know what's gonna happen out there. It's like the cameras are gonna explode. And <laughs> Timothy's playing a cannibal. So. <laughs> yeah, it, that's it's enough. gonna get crazy. <laughs> Bones and all the Luca Guadagnino film. Yeah, you're right, Rebecca. I, I, I will be in Venice, and if I don't see packs of teens running shrieking down narrow canal streets uh i will be surprised because if both harry styles and timmy chalamet are in town i think that whole place is going to explode yeah (laughs) i mean i remember because i was i was at uh, venice when the king the sort of forgotten timothy chalamet oh yeah henry the fifth ish movie premiered and the sun ish yeah yeah very ish um uh script co-written by joel edgerton um that was madness. I mean, I was not even very close to the madness, but I remember it being real bedlam. So uh, add Harry Styles to that mix, and I think that's going to be pretty potent. Um, also out of competition is a Paul Schrader movie, The uh, Master Gardener, which I don't know anything about. But obviously his last two films have really resonated, um, The Card Counter and First Reformed, uh, in a way that his films hadn't in a long time. So I'll, I think I'll be curious to see if he can continue that. Joel Edgerton's in that, so he summoned oh, it. There you go. And uh, Sigourney Weaver is also in it. Uh, talk about someone who has long deserved a great role of late. That's exciting. Um, well, before we wrap up the Venice talk, I, w- I, I want to ask you both a kind of cheap question. But, like, Rebecca, I'll start with you. Oh, gosh. Where do you see an Oscar? <laughs> in, in this in this whole lineup, where would you, right now, in late July, wh- where what one thing would you pin an Oscar to? <sighs> Richard, um, <laughs> I think I'm going to go. I think there's a lot of promise in this lineup. I think I'm going to stick with the Bombeck. I'm going to stick with White okay. Noise. We've got Adam Driver and Bombeck combined again. It's an amazing cast. It's opening night. It's going to at least be a major part of performance, if not picture. And you have Bombeck overdue, weirdly, even though his career is not that new, or that not that old, rather, Driver kind of starting to feel almost overdue. Yes. So, yeah. That's the ingredients are there. What would you say, David? I'm going to go with a specific performance, uh, and that is Brendan Fraser in The Whale. Mm-hmm. I think for probably all of us, the hype on that has been, you know, it's been buzzed about in circles for a while. Darren Aronofsky has rung out Oscar winning performances before. The narrative on Brendan Fraser, I think, is going to be really, really strong. Um, and this is assuming it delivers, at least in that respect, uh, a really great place to kick that off. Um, so that's one I'm, I'm watching just in terms of the challenge of the role um, and knowing how Frazier has not really campaigned for an Oscar before, um, but is a, a really strong personality uh, with media, that that could be a really strong combination. Yeah. And I think, you know, in give, in one scenario, the fall kicking off with Brendan Fraser wins Best Actor at Venice Film Festival in 2022. <laughs> that would be a really interesting narrative. So yeah, I think definitely eyes are on on those two films. I, my Mine is that like, I have, I, I, I would like to live in a reality where somehow Blonde is like amazing and Ana de Armas is, you know, transcendent and a revelation. And she swiftly moves to the front of the pack, even past Kate Blanchett as a orca- I mean- orchestra conductor. <laughs> That honestly, I hadn't really allowed my mind to go there, but now that you've said it, yeah, that would be an incredible, incredible run. I'm, I'm all for that. Yeah. Um, well, potentially spoiling 
those actresses' chances could be recently on Station Eleven, Daniel Deadweiler. Mm. Uh, she's the star of Till, about Emmett Till's mother. That trailer just came out, which is interesting because it's not out for a while, but that will be premiering at the New York Film Festival, which um, I didn't think we were anywhere near announcements for that festival, but I guess we are. That felt very tiff to me. Yeah, one. right? It does. It does feel kind of tiff, but um, but it's, it's, a, it's a strong trailer, even though I have seen plenty of objection online to the movie's existence. Like, why are we doing this? This is traumatic. Like, why are people being exposed to this? But, um, but yeah, did that, did that trailer jump out to either of you, like, as mightily as it did to me because it was like oh i i mean i knew this movie was coming but it it's really announcing itself early which means i think is a statement of intent i thought it was really striking i was really impressed by it and i think daniel deadweiler is such a force i mean those who listen to this podcast know i'm a big fan of hers but even so um just in the two minutes of that trailer she really delivered uh, in a way that i think is going to be pretty undeniable at least in the conversation for a nomination uh, in a few weeks, a few months. Yeah, and it can probably have a little more space at New York. You know, it's not competing with quite so much other. And it might signal that the movie's a bit um, less biopicy to the to the tiff point. You know, it's kind of the opposite of the Fablemans, right? Like, does this signal the movie has artier ambitions than maybe we thought? Well, so. right. And Chinonye Chukwu, who who directed it. She made Clemency a few years ago, which was a Sundance breakout. Alfre Woodard was incredible in that. Really, I think, snubbed for an Oscar nomination that year. Totally. That was like the biggest upset, I think. I mean, it was a tiny movie about the death penalty, so it wasn't that surprising, I guess. But but I think one thing, when I read the logline of Clemency, I was like, okay, so this is going to be this kind of, you know, bland but important issue movie. And it's really anything but. I mean, it's really a stylized film um, in a lot of ways. So I'll be curious to hear what Till does in that regard. Um, There was some Twitter backlash to the trailer, I mean, entirely understandably. And uh, the filmmaker, Matthew Cherry, who won an Oscar for his short animated feature, Hair Love, a few years ago, uh, and directs a lot of television now, he he quote tweeted the trailer was like, I know some people are not looking like no excited about this and i get it but like she chukwu has done something really interesting with the film so i'm kind of guessing he's seen it already and so he seemed to be an advocate for it so i'll be curious to see how that sort of debate about this film uh, which is certainly very charged in subject matter um and placement in time um i'll be curious to see how it fares well uh speaking of trailers uh comic-con happened and amidst I don't know, trailers for Dungeons and Dragons and other things. Um, There was one thing that actually did get me excited, uh, which was Wakanda Forever. A sort of mournful, because obviously the Black Panther star Chadwick Boseman died two years ago, almost. Um, uh, But also exciting, because it's a well-cut trailer with an interesting soundscape, uh, and also just showing off the great supporting cast of the previous film um, that now seem to be moving more toward the center. So... Uh, yeah, did you guys, were you guys, did you, I've kind of felt like, okay, this could get another Best Picture nomination. Obviously, Black Panther famously did, first and only Marvel film to do so. But I was like, ooh, Angela Bassett seems to have a couple big scenes. Yeah, Maybe she could get in. Me. So yeah, w- what are your impressions? Yeah, I feel like it definitely is on the road to being a part of the Best Picture conversation. Uh I mean, so much of Hollywood, I think, is still dealing with the loss of Chadwick Boseman. Obviously, this cast has been talking about it. And, you know, I think it was a big surprise to a lot of people that he was not awarded the Oscar for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And so it feels like they have created a film that is a powerful goodbye to him. And on top of that, you know, Ryan Coogler is just a phenomenal filmmaker and, and was 
given that sort of appreciation for the original film. So it does feel like this is going to be a part of the conversation this year. Yeah, I, I watched the trailer and honestly thought, why wouldn't I have Ryan Coogler's new Black Panther movie as a kind of default Best Picture nominee yeah. right now? There's so many unknowns at this point in the season, obviously. And he is a filmmaker who has proven again and again uh, he should not be underestimated. He is incredibly deft with incredibly complicated circumstances. And uh, in this film, those are there are many of them. Uh, the loss of their star, um, but also just having to work within Marvel and create something really distinctive and artful, which he did the first time around. Yeah, this trailer definitely reminded that he is, he probably should be assumed to be in that conversation, and this film should be assumed to be in that conversation uh, until proven otherwise. Yeah, I mean, I think the one thing that has me, well, the big thing that has me worried a little bit is that you look at Iron Man 2 or Avengers 2 or Taika Waititi's second turn in the Thor, ch you know, chair. Like, yes. like this, this, the follow-up Marvel film from uh, one director, be it Jon Favreau or Taika Waititi or whoever, doesn't tend to fare well based on history. But I think this is a different thing in, in the same way that Black Panther exists in the Marvel canon and it's in the continuity of its storyline and all that stuff. But it does stand on its own in a way a lot of the other films don't. Um, I, I, my hope is that Wakanda Forever will kind of exist in that same way, where yes, it's it's doing its duty as like connecting this movie to that movie and setting things forward in motion, but like also is doing its own kind of whole thing. Um, I, I, my my hunch would be that that is kind of how they're positioning it, just because the trailer is a much more considered emotional. Uh, thing than our most Marvel trailers, obviously, and and I think so. I think that I think the studio does know that this movie has to exist in a different way, and hopefully they knew that all through production too, and and kind of didn't maybe try to micromanage in the same way that they do for other other titles. Mm. In our week of Kiki Palmer memes, and maybe this is me transitioning to Nope, but uh, there was one of her doing these unbelievable impressions of Angela Bassett mm -hmm. at her most. Uh, hysterical in classic film scenes like Lo What's Love Gotta Do With It, which basically to me was a reminder of how great Angela Bassett can be, mm -hmm. and especially with a crying scene, and it looks like this movie is going to deliver them. So I would love to see her uh, find her way into that conversation, even though I do think with, with Marvel movies, it is particularly difficult for actors to break through that noise. Um, Michael B. Jordan, of course, was kind of circling for the first Black Panther, um, but didn't make it through. Um, but I would, anyway, I'd love to see that. The thing helping Bassett in that regard is like, again, we were talking about Bombeck and whoever else, like, talk about overdue, you yeah. know, yep. like, like, th there are, I mean, there are still people who are like, she should have won for what's love got to do with it all those years ago. And I, I wouldn't disagree. I mean, she's amazing in that movie. She's been great in other things. She hasn't quite had the opportunities, I don't think, unfortunately, that no. she should have gotten. Um, so this feels like maybe a slight mea culpa on that would, you know, that would be part of a win. So I don't know, I, there's something about that trailer. And then we see a little snippet of a speech in front of a group of people. And I was like, oh, this could be her, something big for her, which would be great. Yeah. Uh, well, David, you mentioned Nope, uh, which means I think it might be time to let you go because you haven't seen Nope. Blame COVID. And we don't want to spoil it for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I say nope to COVID. Um, <laughs> so should you. Um, so we'll let you go. But uh, and then Rebecca and I will have a little chat about about that film. 
All right. So, Rebecca, we've both seen this very buzzed about, very secretive uh, until probably that last trailer. I think that one, maybe it was an international trailer, kind of gave away too much for my taste. But a lot of people have seen it. It did pretty well over its opening weekend. So now that we can talk a little more freely about the film, uh, I'm curious what you what you think of it. And has it changed at all in your mind since you first saw it? It's interesting as I, w- I went to the LA premiere of this. And first of all, wonderful film to see with people like I don't go to that many movies in sort of packed theaters, uh, you know, as many as I used to and just the laughter, the jumping in your seats like this is a movie to obviously see in a theater if you can. And um, I walked out of it really, really impressed. And especially with the acting performances, I think we've all talked about Kiki Palmer as much as humanly possible. But you know, she's not only great at an interview, she is like, really wonderful in this film. And uh, I hope it gets many more leading roles after this. Um, and Daniel Kaluuya, I think, is one of the most consistent actors in every movie he's in and, and does it again in sort of a different way with this one. Um, I had a lot of questions, and I think that's what Peel wants to do with his films. He doesn't want you to have it all figured out when you walk out of the theater. I would say there was... Oh, we can spoil things, right? This, the yeah. storyline oh, yeah. with Gordo did not work as well for me when I walked out of the theater. I was like, I did not enjoy that storyline um, about the murderous monkey but you know this with peel's films i go and i read interviews i read like as many articles as i can after i see them because i do think there is so much to dig into and and he said that he he added that storyline to make you feel uncomfortable and that's exactly what it did for me and why i hated it so now (laughs) i would say my appreciation has definitely grown as i've sort of sat with the film and, and read more on it Richard, what about you? I read your review, but I'd love to hear uh, from you what your sort of general take was. Yeah, I mean, I think that I probably owe it a second viewing, you know, Mm -hmm. because it is so dense with themes and ideas and motifs and all this, you know, there's just so much detail in it that on first viewing, um, and, you know, I'm not complaining, but it's just you have to, you know, I had to turn that review around kind of quickly because there's an embargo that's up early the next morning or whatever. So I didn't get as much time to think about it. But like in that initial, let's say, 12 something hours, like I I just didn't feel like a lot of that stuff hung together. It's interesting that you say that he kind of added the Gordo thing, you know, which wasn't initially part of the, the movie's landscape. And I think kind of a lot of the movie feels like that. Like it's like, oh, yeah, I could do this and I could do this. And, and then I'll sort of find a way to tie it together. And I don't know if it really did that for me. And I did feel the same way about us. You know, mm. I think Peel is such a talented filmmaker uh, on so many levels. I mean, he I say in my review, like he's just so good at like taking genre conventions and your typical scene of discovery or whatever it is in the early stretches of one of these movies and, and kind of just turning it at a weird angle or yep. sort of, it feels sometimes like the camera is is moving to see a side of something we, we don't normally see. And, and, and that's really exciting. I think that what maybe has tripped him up, for me at least in his last two movies, is that that were in his mind, the sort of the scope of his ambition, sometimes I think gets the better of the story he's trying to tell. And I, I love a movie where you have to kind of parse it out later and 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 that reading things helps, you know, to sort of supplement or explain things. I think there's nothing wrong with a a movie that's sort of withholding about what it's really about. But I also don't know if we should be asked to do quite so much work to help this film make sense. And um, so I think maybe some editing of of the text itself would benefit it. But that said, some of the set pieces are incredible. I think yeah. that opening, not opening, but it's it's kind of one of the first introductions to this thing in the sky when um, 
Daniel Kaluuya's character is out in the valley and it's nighttime and there are just lights in the distance and ominous sounds and the sky is, you know, midnight blue. And I, that stuff is so good and is really where the kind of homage to Spielberg and M. Night Shyamalan, I think, reads the best. Yeah, I think he's such an intelligent and like beautiful filmmaker. And I do, I mean, when you start out your career, your filmmaking career with Get Out, I it's like, it, it's a nearly perfect film to me. And so to watch him push beyond what he's already done is is so admirable to me. You know, he doesn't have to keep pushing to make these films bigger and, and different genres. Like, I think what he's doing is really brave and really pushing his own skill in in a way I admire. Um, I agree with what you're saying. There's a lot of ideas and sometimes that would take me out of the film while I was watching it. Like, oh, what does this part have to do with this? Or why is that shoe floating on the ground like that? Or things like that. So um, I agree that he has a lot going on and, and, and maybe that's just, you know, the nature of how his mind works. Um, I do think he is probably one of the best at sort of casting and getting performances from actors that I just think are nearly perfect. You know, I mean, I mentioned Kiki and Daniel Kaluuya already, but Stephen Yun is is great in his role in this. And then a newer actor, Brandon Perea, has a, a really strong role, I thought, as sort of that Fry's electronics guy who appears in the film and I think he's a really strong director when it comes to actors, especially. Yeah, Perez is a strong role and a strong jawline. Yeah, strong jawline. <laughs> uh, he is a handsome, handsome man, as is Daniel Kaluuya, obviously, <laughs> and Stephen Young, who, um, you know, Stephen Young's part is interesting because that's another one where I was like, I, I, look, I like a lot of what this is doing. I just don't know if it fits in this mm. other story. And in and, and that stuff where, you know, Stephen Young is playing this former child star who witnessed this horrible thing on a set a story that was definitely influenced by that real life story about the yep. woman whose whose friend chimpanzee mauled her and she went on Oprah later and um, basically did not have a face anymore. All of that, I think, was so th- interesting and grim. But th- when it tries to lock up with what's happening with the horse ranch and those characters, I think that's when the movie unfortunately reveals some of its narrative holes or faults in logic. And look, not everything need be logical. There can be weird little loops of reason and maybe things don't make sense. That's okay. But I sometimes, but I has to feel, I think intentional and it doesn't always hear. It sometimes feels like an oversight, which, you know, maybe I'm being too pedantic about the movie and and just, you know, auditing it too closely. But I think unfortunately, because he had this huge breakout with get out his first film as a director and a writer, and it is so airtight that unfortunately I, you know, you kind of do approach subsequent films hoping for that same level of assuredness and 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 uh, holistic, I guess, competence or whatever, and and I don't know that his subsequent two films have have delivered that. But I, I would be curious to see what he did working with another writer. Mm, you know, same directorial technique, um, maybe another voice in that part of the process um, to to see to help shape things a little bit. And because you know, sometimes Nope feels a little bit aimless, I guess, in all of its many, many, many ideas. I wonder if the Gordy, I think I called him Gordo earlier. I apologize to the CG monkey. His name is Gordy. Um, and you apologize to Gordo from Lizzie McGuire. <laughs> also, apologies, apologies yeah. all around. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if it would have been better as like a separate film, although I would have not have watched that film because that was such a stressful storyline. But I see what you're saying. It does feel like two ideas um, split the movie in that way. 
I, I think I used it in the term in, in my review of uh, of us, but like it's something that I've used to describe things in the past. It's like it's like a junk drawer movie. You know, it's like you have that drawer in your house that has like rubber bands and uh, one battery and, you know, whatever other random ephemera that you toss in there that you'll hope to use someday. And it does sometimes feel like he has all these interesting snippets of something and then he kind of stitches them together and takes a step back and says, is this a movie? Um, and I don't, I sometimes I think I see that stitching too, too plainly, but, but um, yeah, if you have anything to say to us about Nope, if you have, if disagree with us, agree with us, whatever you can, um, or if you want to talk about anything else, ask us a question, leave a comment, you can contact us on subtext. Uh, you can go to join subtext.com slash little gold men, or you can text 917-809-7096. Uh, we're also on Twitter at Little Gold Men. And on our own, I'm at Rylaws, David Canfield's at David Canfield 97, and Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best description of where Katie Rich is right now goes to David Canfield. Cursing at children <laughs> at, at an elementary school. <laughs> <laughs>